Okay, welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Once again, this is me, Joshua Black, and this time we're, we're without Sean Ram again, uh, the co-host. But uh, lucky for us, we have Jade Black coming in to fill in for Sean. Jade, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm good. So here we are again, and we get to talk to someone that you knew, or you knew of the loss anyways. And yes. I think this is going to be an interesting conversation because it might bring back memories that maybe you didn't really think about in, in a little while. Right, Jade? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool kind of um, connection and, and um, small world. And it seems like things like this keep kind of popping up. It's, it's, you know, it's like kind of the six degrees of separation kind of thing. So it's always fascinating to, you know, connect with people you knew or, heard or knew of and, and, and hear their stories and stuff. It seems like in one way or another, we're all, we're all connected. So that's interesting, to say the least. Mm-hmm. All right. So we'll introduce the guest now. So today we have Jeanette Thompson, uh, who works as a spiritual grief counselor and a workshop facilitator. Her life forcefully changed direction after the death of her son. During the next few years, her search for answers turned into furthering her education. She trained as a grief counselor at Mohawk College and trained as a volunteer crisis worker for the Sexual Assault Center and the Distress Center. She then became certified as a spiritual psychotherapist and spiritual director through the Transformational Arts College of Spiritual and Holistic Training. And so, Jeanette, welcome to the podcast. Joshua, it's nice to uh, finally get to talk to you. Yes, it's. I was actually. You have a daughter, <laughs> and do. you do have a daughter, Tamara. A little shout out for her. And we were friends, you know, growing up. And I never got to meet you, but it's nice to finally meet you and realize, wow, you know, like how far your life has come on your journey and where it's come. Because I knew of the loss of her brother, but I didn't know the effects of it. Because at that time, my father wasn't passed away, I believe. So. When that happened, only after my father passed away did I care about other people's loss and other people's journey. So um, I look forward to hearing what you have to sort of say about your your trials, I guess, and where where you've come from. Did you go to high school with Tamara or no. elementary school? Or how we did had, you guys know each other? We had mutual friends. And okay. so it was like Brooke and Ange. She was in that group. and right. Because like they all went to to Simcoe and I yes. went to collegiate at that time. That's right. Okay, mm-hmm. gotcha. What was your life like prior to your son passing away? Honestly, it was really pretty simple. Um, I was uh, working full time. Uh, I just just secured a pl- employment, and um, so I was you know delving into that. And Tamara was busy going to school and. Matt was working on his own. He was actually in construction, and he was a framer, and he was doing very, very well. Had only just started his own business. And um, so things were looking really, really good for him. Yeah, so, I mean, it was just sort of normal, I guess. (laughs) We had pets, dogs, and cats. We had a home and so on. Um, And everything seemed pretty cool. Um, What was it? it? That happened. What was it like being a mother? Oh, well, <laughs> being a mom for me was like everything. I thought that that was my main purpose in life. Um, uh, I thought there was nothing else that I was sort of meant to do in my life. 
other than, you know, work and so on. But being a mom seemed to be number one. That changed totally after he passed away because I started really questioning, why am I here? Like, if, you know, if my purpose or half of my purpose is gone, why am I here? So it really sent me on on quite a journey, you know, once I got through the the shock and everything of it. I was really, I really began searching. And so, you know, growing up, like, what was it like raising, because when did he die? How old was he when he passed away? He was 21. 21. So what was it like? You had 21 years raising him. So can you tell me a little about that journey as a mom and and him being a son? Well, Matt, um, he started out like he was just, a real sweetheart. Everybody loved him. He was very friendly, pretty happy kid, and uh, very sort of sensitive. Like, he was a deep, deep person. But, you know, like most teenagers, he started, you know, experimenting with things <laughs> that weren't very healthy, and uh, and that kind of, you know, kind of put uh, a new mask, I call it a mask, as far as him, he was covering up for some some emotional things that he was going through that he had a hard time talking about. But he got through that. We got through it. I never, ever stopped loving him. I think he was the the one person in my life who taught me what unconditional love really is he, because of it didn't change my love for him, anything that he, you know, was doing in his life because I knew that he was more than what was happening. So anyway, so there was a real special closeness there between us. There was a really strong connection. Um, So yeah, like it was really, really great. And then by the time he was 19, 20, 21 years old, he was starting to really find his own direction. And he had uh, found that he wanted to build houses. And that's what he got involved in. He put 150% into it, and um, things were looking really, really good. So, yeah. So it's even when he did pass away, he was quite happy in his life when he did pass. So that's, in a way, kind of comforting for me. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and I know, Jade, you, you knew Matthew, right? Yes. Yeah, I knew him. And he, I mean, not, like, really intimately, but... I just remember being having an extremely colorful personality and being and funny and endearing and just kind of that person that everybody wants to talk to and just uh, that's the only way I can really describe what I knew of him is just being having a very colorful personality and loved by a lot of people really popular in 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 high school and and stuff so yeah Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, a very positive, a very positive reputation, at least from what from what I knew, and and just you know, just kind of light up the room kind of person. And you know, when you say sensitive, I, I mean, I didn't know that personally of him, but I, I could I could see that, like the kind of person that you know could really feel stuff out and not be not be ashamed of being like in touch with that part of of himself. That doesn't surprise me that you say that. So. He definitely could do that. Yeah, and he was learning to be more and more open about it. So yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. So thank you for sharing a little about who he was to you and his journey. So what was it like finding out that he passed away? 
can you take us through the journey of maybe um, how he died and then, you know, did you get called? Was it, you know, who, who told you about okay. that? Yeah, well, it was pretty, pretty traumatic. So, but I'll say, I'll try to remain um, neutral on it so that I don't break down. <laughs> but um, the night that uh, that he passed away, he had worked all day. And so around 6 o'clock in the evening, it was a Friday evening, he had called me and said he wouldn't be home for supper, that he was going to go basically play in the water, which is what he called swimming, diving, playing on a sea-do, you know, whatever he liked to do with his friends. And I said, okay, it had not been a warm summer, so, you know, every opportunity that he could to get on the water, he would take. So I said, okay, and he, I said, okay, and we just said, I love you, like we normally did, and uh, bye, and that was it. And then uh, around, everything seemed okay, I didn't know uh, what was going on, but um I got a knock on the door at about quarter to 12, and when I opened the door, it was a policeman and his one of Matt's friends, and and then a strange stranger, uh, two strangers that I had never seen before, and the policeman just said that there's been an, um, an accident um, down at McFarland Park, um, and your son is missing in the water, basically, is what he said. And we have been searching for him since a little after 8, I guess. So it was like, you know, almost four hours. And I said, oh, oh, okay. I, of course, I just went into complete denial and, and shock, and I didn't. And I said, okay, well, just give me a minute, because I was already in my PJs. And and then I changed, and and then they came in, and I said, "What what do I what do I do?" I, I and I just was convinced that he was fine, and you know it was just like they just haven't found him yet, and you know he's he's up on the side somewhere, and you know people just they haven't found him because it's dark, and you know you just tell yourself like a zillion different possibilities other than the you know the worst one, and um, th- so they basically told us that um, they were going to resume the search in the morning with divers and so on, and I still didn't connect at all. And I called Tamara and asked her to come straight home, and she was on her way anyways. And then we just jumped in the car with uh, his friend. The police, you know, followed us out there, and the other two strangers were victim from the victim services. Um, they were volunteers to help when there are tragedies like that. So... That's who they were. So we went down um, to where his father has a boat with his wife, and we told them that this was happening. And so they got organized, and we all ba- we basically met down at McFarland Park, and we spent the night there, um, just kind of waiting till the morning came. Um, we did our own searching, which you know we couldn't do much of because it was so dark and it was dangerous, and. Um, so they sealed off the whole area and everything. So about it was 13 hours that went by from 8 until 9 in the morning. And in the morning at 9 was when the divers went in and they found him right away. They found his body right away. Fortunately, it had not gone downstream because it was the Niagara River. So we were just lucky in a way that he was right there. So... Yeah, so that's kind of when that's how it it went. It was it was just very very awful. 
like the whole thing was very, very tragic and just shocking, absolutely shocking. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, that's it. Like, after that, everything happened quickly, and they took him away, and, you know, we had to plan everything, and so that was that was pretty much it. And uh, what had, well, what had happened was, um, I guess, in previous years, he'd been there just jumping off of this rope that was very popular and had been there for many years. But I guess the previous year or so, some kids had gotten together and they'd built um, a platform about 20 feet up, right off of one of the trees. And the kids were climbing up and diving and jumping off that platform. So apparently he was doing backflips off of it into the water and had been successful. And then I guess he was going to stop and he got kind of egged on and he said, oh, and he did it again. And my understanding from the witnesses that were there was that the last flip he did not, um, he landed flat and almost like a belly flop and it appeared to have knocked him out. And so he went under and then that was it. Um, And then his friend came up the hill and screamed for people that were picnicking to call 911 and of course that got the ball ball rolling and that's basically what happened. He was just uh, playing, you know, and he just, he was tired and, you know, probably, you know, shouldn't have taken that last dive, but, you know, he made that choice, unfortunately, and, um, and that was the result. Since then, that tree has been chopped down. Um, that happened shortly after his death. So, wow. yeah, so that's pretty much what happened. That's just so tragic and so shocking. And so obviously at that point, you had to move from a place of, you know, considering every other option to, okay, now I'm seeing this in front of my face. And so you're forced to accept that reality Yeah. at that point. And you, you when you wrote into the podcast, you said not surprisingly, but that moved you into a state of feeling numb and, you know, depression and stuff. So how did you cope with that, too, and especially with having your your daughter? Because I can only imagine how that would, you know, just basically turn everything on its head. And, and can you just talk a little bit about sure. how, how how you maintained, you know, life and, and, and able to function? Because Obviously, you're you're here now, so you yeah, exactly. Um, and probably uh, is so much. I know that immediately after the shock, and you know, there's uncontrollable crying, and in that whole air, you know, Tamara, they had to have an ambulance because she was in such shock. She was hyperventilating, and they had to make sure that she wouldn't stop breathing. And so it was it was quite scary for a little while. And then, um, you know, we couldn't stop crying, and it was, it was, it was just that. But once, once we got through, you know, a, a period of time—I don't even know how long—before we had to actually go to, we went to um, in-laws, but places for to to meet uh, the family, other family, and and prepare. We had to actually um, go and identify his body because they wouldn't let us see it at the park. I don't know right. why they just said they couldn't. So, so we still we had that was our our first step into 
really the re- even more reality of it was seeing him. And once yeah, I saw yeah. him, that's when it really, really hit me hard, right? Because there he was. So anyways, numb, numbness takes over. I can't even explain what it felt like. It felt I, I felt nothing. I felt nothing. I, I don't even know. It's like you're frozen inside. And um, and I remained that way for for right through the whole memorial service and the you know people and all that kind of stuff. That it felt like that's the only place I could be. And then um, and with Tamara, she was more sort of openly emotional, where I was kind of holding it in because you know right. I got told right away like you got to be strong for Tamara and all that kind of thing. So that's where I went. I went into mother mode, right, protective mode. But, yeah, anyway, so the numbness, you know, takes over, and then slowly little bits here and there of reality uh, come back, and then it's it's depressing, and then it's sadness. And so I can't say there there were any very many positive um, experiences in the first uh, quite a few months. Um, Of course. Yeah. And you, you had you mentioned when you wrote into the podcast that you prayed like I had never prayed before. Oh, what does that mean? Yeah, I, like what I, were you what like, were you saying? What were you praying for? I was praying for understanding. I was. Okay. I, was I knew you were going to say that. I had a feeling. Yeah, I, I mean, I knew. I strongly believed that he was not gone in the sense of I would never ever experience him again in any form. I. I strongly believed that that he was in spirit and that he he would be near me and that, but I was still very attached to the physical part of him, and um, so that was what was causing all the pain. That's what still causes all the pain, um, but that helped me to move through my grief. If I didn't believe that I would see him again in some way, some form, I don't think I would have survived it. Honestly, no, and I think that's very common to ask for understanding. Like it's just like help yeah. me make sense of yeah. all of this, right? It's that's very common, and and yep. yeah, it makes it makes sense to me. But it's interesting too that you say if you didn't believe in spirit or that your bond would be continued in just another way, you would have to adapt to you know shifting the bond to something else so it's not severed it's just kind of shape shifting and and that's I really resonate with that as well because it's I feel the same way about the people that I've lost like if I didn't have that feeling like we're still connected and and have evidence of that in my life I don't know if I I too would be able to keep going yeah and then I mean and that was a big um a, a big sort of hurdle I had to get get through during my grieving period, like the first few years, was whether I wanted to stay or, or not. And I'm being honest about it because that's how that's how difficult it was for me. That's yeah. how painful it was for me. Um, yeah. There seemed like there was nothing worth living for. So I, I kind of grabbed on to Tamara in a way that, you know, may not have been the healthiest thing to do, uh, but it was all that I could do at the time because I had really minimal family or friend support, so I was pretty much on my own 
and that made it really, really difficult. But I have, you know, obviously learned a lot from all of that experience and moved forward in my life. Um, It's going on 13 years, and it's still a challenging topic, but the difference now is that um, I I have a better understanding and accept. Of course, the acceptance piece wasn't there before, and it is now. Uh, but it's it's still painful because you're, we're still human. You know, the memory of it will never go away, and it will it will always be there. It just that it isn't uh, as painful as it used to be. Hmm. Um, I don't know how else to explain it, to be honest with you. I think you did a good job and really just showcasing the the pain and the suffering you went through. And it's nice you had a daughter that you could lean on that could actually understand your pain. And that's yeah. what you're talking about. Other people, we talk about this all like all the time on the podcast, is a lot of people go through grief alone. People may be there in the beginning, but at the end like after a week or two, you don't see people anymore. So you're really doing a lot of this stuff on your own. And so I'm glad you found a way, even though it might not have been that healthy, as you said, it got you through. You know, some people even use drugs and stuff like that to get through. And, you know, that's what they need at that time. But, you know, it's when you can now let go of that and start breathing on your own, that's when you realize how much work you've actually done. And so I'm guessing you're a little more less... Your, your relationship with your daughter is probably a little bit better now as you sort of, you said, like become less attached and you're yes. sort of moving yes. through. Yes, I'm guessing. Yeah. So you can see how much you actually grew. And it's just at that moment, that small moment, you needed that. And that's okay. And just accepting myself that it was, it's okay that, you know, I maybe didn't make all the right choices or whatever. It's okay. I did what I could with what I knew and what, with what I had and, and with what I was capable of with my heart being as broken as it was. So now I look at it in such a different way. It's, it's, it, I call it almost like a blessed journey. As, and I, I bless it because I call it blessed because he taught me so much. And, and the whole experience taught me so much and made me realize how strong I really am. And that has, changed is changing my life it's taking me a while i'm not the quickest person (laughs) in the world but uh you know better late than never (laughs) i think it's important not to judge ourselves for what we need in those in those moments and through those periods in our lives and i think that through you going through that and being really gentle and saying this is what i needed at the time and exactly like joshua said it got me to a next step and, you know, like I used what I knew how to use and, and how, how, how I was able to cope in whatever way. And, and that allows us to, to, to offer um, that space to other people that we're encountering. And we're going to be less judgmental of what they need to get through their grief. Because everybody needs something. We're not all the same. In, in, like Josh was saying, sometimes we, I don't know, we might abuse substances or... Or we rely on relationships that, in retrospect, might not have been the healthiest way of doing it. But yeah, to really look back on that and and see the progression is amazing. Well, and I I feel really fortunate that I don't really didn't really have sort of an addictive personality. 
at the time I did smoke cigarettes, but mm. as far as alcohol or any other type of drug, it just wasn't part of who I was. So yeah. I didn't turn to that. Plus, I couldn't afford to do that. <laughs> Anyways, in the situation I was in, I shouldn't laugh, but it's really the truth. Um, <laughs> but I mean, even now to this day, I mean, I, I have to say this, like, the difference in who I am now is so different. I, having been a cigarette smoker uh, for nearly 50 years, I actually quit two years ago. So that is may not seem like a lot to a lot of people. Oh, but it seems I, like a lot to me. It tells <laughs> seems like me. a lot to me. <laughs> well, it tells me that I think I'm worth it for the first time, like that I am worth, you know, continuing to live and offer whatever I can to help others. And that's where I am trying to go with my life and everything that's happened up till now is has happened for a reason. Um, when I stopped asking why, that's when I got answers from from what I call spirit or God. And uh, because I, there was there was no why that my mind would understand. There's only a why that my heart can understand. And um, when I was ready to do that, that's when everything started to really change for the better. So interesting I, I'm on that. my way, but I'm a work in progress forever. <laughs> Did you're saying something? Um, you know, about the point she was saying about, you know, her the intellect, like her mind, your mind can't understand the why, like when you think it through, but you're, when your heart asks the why, then it becomes a little bit more reassured and, and calming because now you're saying you can see all, how all the pieces have led to where you are now, even though it's never in the way that, you know, nobody would pick this stuff. Nobody would, exactly. you know, nobody would pick this, but but just the emphasis on, on the heart is like, mm-hmm. it's painful, but it's like that our hearts get it, you know? Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And though you said that the willingness of this, like no one would pick, as you said, Jade, uh, for one of their loved ones to die. But the things that can happen after is very remarkable. It's like I'm doing research now on grief and doing a lot of awareness and helping others, which I never would have, I didn't care about anyone's loss prior to my father's. And so it can really expand our heart. And I think that's what's happened here too with uh, Jeanette. So one of your ways of coping, you're, you wrote in and talked about education. And so can you talk about how that helped you as you move forward and then how that led you to want to help others? Well, right after he died, I probably purchased every single book that I could find on losing a child. And, um, and I didn't have a lot of money, but what I did have extra, I spent on books. I wasn't getting satisfaction, I guess you could say, from the books. I, I was learning, but I was reading through them so quickly that I just felt they were just going in one ear and out the other. So I started looking into taking courses. The other reason that drew me into taking um, my first course, which was um, Grief and Bereavement Education at, at Mohawk College, was that I had approached uh, the funeral parlor where we had Matt's memorial uh, only three months after he had passed, asking if I could join their grief and bereavement group. 
And um, they shocked me by saying, no, I could not, because they felt that my grief was was in a, not in, in a conducive place to be able to actually heal from the group. So they said they thought it was too soon. Well, that shocked me because I really wasn't, I felt, in need of some kind of counseling or something, right? So I went directly into education at that point. Um, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to do what I can, and that's what I did. So I started, um, and I took for a year, I took grief uh, counseling and um, education at uh, Mohawk. And then from there, I just sort of, I don't know, I just, I fell in love with the whole, the whole idea of healing from grief. So I was basically looking everywhere. So once that led to, you know, doing volunteer work and taking um, volunteer training and, um, and then coming back at one point and I ended up going to school in Toronto. So it just all kind of snowballed into that. And then when I got to Toronto and I was, I was still living in St. Catharines, but I was traveling to Toronto and um, I had um, had been approved to participate in this called Second Chance program through EI because I'd been laid off from my job. And um, so they paid for my, my ed- education in that area, which was incredibly wonderful. <laughs> and uh, so that's where I ended up there. Then when I finally ended up moving out here, I basically just went into taking any kind of work so that I could pay the bills kind of thing. And then now I've reached a point where I'm able to work part-time uh, looking for, you know, more work, but also build my practice. So all along it was really, I thought, all about helping others. I was I was trying to learn whatever I could so that I could be a counselor and I could help other people. But meanwhile... What I was really learning, the, the most important piece, was how I, to heal myself. And and that took me a while to discover that I was actually sort of neglecting my own personal healing by sort of covering it up, by learning how I could help others. Um, when I finally opened up to the healing part for myself, that's when it was like I had to grieve the hard part all over again. So that's where I learned my most valuable lessons about grief and bereavement, and that was never, never hold it in or try to cover it up or stay busy or whatever. When you're grieving, let yourself grieve. Let it hurt. You know, you won't die from grieving. You know, you, you, you won't physically die from grieving. And so that's what led me here, and that was just a few years ago that that actually happened. So a lot of years went by before I started to realize that um, my healing was the most important. Wow. It's really profound, really profound story. Thank you for sharing all that. I think it's really interesting that you came to that discovery of, because a lot of times people do just stay busy and keep educating and keep using that as, 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 as a Band-Aid. So for you to come to that can you just speak briefly on how you came to that realization? Like, like what part of you said, "Oh my God, I'm using this, I'm using this to well, run from my grief." 
well, it didn't come by myself. <laughs> it came um, <laughs> from a, I, just kind of one of the women that I went to school with in Toronto, or I should say met in Toronto. She was from Port Dover. We became friends, and she was a very um, extremely intuitive spiritual person, I guess you could say. And she, to this day, is a very close friend of mine, and she's actually my mentor as well in the okay. spiritual realm of things. And uh, when we were at TAC, we call it Transformational Arts College, when we were at TAC, we went through the whole program and stuff like that, but then we didn't see each other for two years. And then out of the blue, she called me two years later and said, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's very weird. Wow. But anyways, if you believe in, in spirit, she said that Matthew contacted her and said, you've got to call my mom. And um, wow. so we kind of picked up our friendship again, and she introduced me to a wonderful spiritual teacher who at the time was in Edmonton, which was near where I was living, and she would come down and stay with me, and we would go to these retreats together. And so that was the opening. The opening happened in that time and um, continued to happen over the next about three years, and it's still wow. opening. But yeah. that's kind of how it came about. Yeah, okay. it was pretty incredible. Yeah, isn't that ama- isn't that amazing? Like her, that she said, "Yes, I do believe in spirit." So um, that doesn't seem strange to me at all. That that your son would encourage her to contact you and and do that. That's that's quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty awesome for sure. Yeah, anything yeah. that can sort of move move your your life forward and open your heart, I think it's just it's amazing. And those those moments where you can sit in the mystery of it all really allows us to, I think, breathe a little differently than we were before. So I'm glad it led you on this path because I think you're going to be helping a lot of people as you move forward in your practice. And you said, like, you already opened up your own heart. So I can only imagine the people around you that are feeling that. And so let's move to dreams now. Have you ever had a dream of Matthew? Well, I mean, I have since he passed. I've had a couple of dreams, but they've been very sad and, and very difficult dreams um, that I actually would don't, don't really have enough information about the dreams to talk about them, uh, but I did have dreams about him before he passed away while he was still living, and they were almost like, I don't know, warnings or prepare. I always now refer to them as dreams that prepared me for his death, although I was never prepared but in some deep, deep soul level, I believe that I, I was. <clears throat> and the first dream I had was, I, I just call it frozen in time. And it was, uh, his dad and I were searching for Matthew. He was missing. This is about three months before he actually passed. We were searching for him in the water. And they, we found him, but he was encased in a, a great big, large ice cube. It sounds really weird, but anyways, in in the ice cube was him. He was sitting. He was about nine years old, and he was seated with <clears throat> his beautiful blue eyes were very sparkly like they always were, and he had a really nice smile on his face, and that's all that I remember about that dream. <clears throat> the fact that I had that dream before he died, it's frightened me so much that I blocked it out, and I didn't remember that one or the one I'm going to tell you next 
for about three months after he passed. Then I remembered I'd had these dreams. And the second one was that I actually read his eulogy at his memorial service. We were in the church, and it was packed with people, and it was in the church that we actually had his service in, which I really, you know, stuff that I didn't know. But I remember the feeling that I felt in that particular one, that particular dream, and it was the pain that I was experiencing was the same uh, intensity as the love that I felt for him coming from my heart, and that produced a state of numbness for me uh, in the dream. So again, that was a dream that frightened the heck out of me, and I blocked it out. And those are the two dreams that I never talked about. Again, uh, there's only one other person I've ever told those dreams to, and you are the second people. Well, that now I've you've told, told everybody. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> but much, I yeah. I tried to tell <laughs> Sarah, but um, she asked me about dreams, and I started to tell her one, but it was way too upsetting for her. So I never even did finish telling her about them. Um, she's had some pretty nice dreams herself. So, you know, at some point, maybe she'll want to talk to you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, she's always welcome on to share that. I think that's very interesting. And thank you for opening that up and, and sharing it to us uh, and a yeah. lot of other people. Because it does sort of, you know, it, it opens up those wounds a little bit. Um, but I think it it provides you to sit with that mystery of of not only how you could even block it out, so you could only remember after the fact that it actually occurred, but that it even happened. Like the water, like it's it's not like, like there's some dreams people share that they say it was like a warning or that for the precognitive dream, but it, like they're really stretching the imagery. But what you're saying was very similar of what actually happened. He died in the water and that's where you found him. And then the eulogy. And so it's very, very interesting. And I'm glad you share that because it does bring awareness to the dreams prior to loss that people can have also and what that can do in the grief journey. And I think also, um, even though it didn't prepare me on sort of the surface level um, of like my physicality for his death, at a soul level, I do believe that those dreams assisted me through my journey of grief um, because I have been trying so hard (laughs) or just diligently trying to contact my soul, you know, connect with my soul. And, um, and I think that that's, that's where these dreams hit, mm. if, if you yeah. know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Absolutely. That's nice. And I, think then... it's, I think it's amazing to use those dreams as once you are ready to remember them, because obviously you're not going to remember them before it's time and before you're prepared. And I think a part of us knows you know, oh, okay, it's safe to, to, it's time to bring this back into her consciousness and make her aware, you know, remind you. And so you can, because obviously you're going to do something with them. They have to be incorporated into your experience no matter how painful, but to help you to move forward and to make a further sense of of the dream, no matter how mysterious and, and, you know, a little bit eerie that probably felt to you, the whole experience. Yeah, and so... Just because of time, um, what dream would you want to have of Matthew if you could have one tonight? Oh, it's interesting you should ask that because I actually have been asking for the last few days <laughs> so that I could have something else to talk about. But obviously, he's decided not that 
these were good enough. <laughs> I think I just I just want to hold them. That's all. I just want to hold them in my arms. <laughs> mm. That's the only thing I want to do. What age would you want them to be? Oh, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter. But I do. I do know that <clears throat> when he was nine years old was when I. Uh, I just remember that age in him, which is the age he was in this that one dream. He was just an incredible little guy. You know, he was just all loving, all attentive. He was caring, sensitive, like everything that he could be, he was at that age. And I, I remember that. And I maybe that's why the nine-year-old showed up in that ice cube, you know, because mm-hmm. that was his sparkly eyes and his big smile and his heart was huge, you know. So wow. I just want to hold him. It, yeah. it doesn't matter what age. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, hopefully one day, since you couldn't share on the podcast, hopefully one day as you move forward, you get one of those dreams where you get to hold them and express your love and feel that love that you still have for each other. I think that's beautiful. And so I just want to thank you so much for opening up and and sharing something that you really haven't shared with a lot of people. I think that's remarkable. And I love where your journey has taken you. I think you had a lot of suffering in your life, but you've made use of it to help the world grow and help yourself grow. And I said, you even quit cigarettes. So it's amazing of what you've done uh, in your life. And so moving forward, where can people reach out if they want to sort of come to you or learn more about you? Well, I do have a Facebook page. It's called Therapy for Heart and Soul, and it's it's under my name, Jeanette Thompson, and I have a website, and it's www.spiritual-counseling.com. So if they're interested in, you know, hooking up to, I have a blog on that website as well, so if they want to chat or whatever, you're more than welcome anytime. Amazing. So we'll put a link to that in our our notes for the show. Yeah. I just want to thank you, Jeanette. Sorry, Josh. Joshua, I cut you off there, but I just I want to thank you for being um, so brave and and super honest and sharing you know facets of your journey that that you haven't with everybody. And and I was really I am really touched by your story, and I feel like a lot of people who listen, it's going to give them permission to um, acknowledge some things that that perhaps they have been hiding themselves and understand how um, you know the heavy the heavy stuff can be used for for good as well. So thank you so much for doing that. You're very welcome, and thank you very much for inviting me to do this. It's it has helped me. I even feel pretty good now although i want i'm going to turn around i'm going to cry my eyes out after i'm done so but that's what i'll need hey that's fine and say like if if you're being helped through just talking about this this journey then we've done our part as a podcast because that's what it's about it's helping at least one person grow in the journey and and have a voice and so moving on to our stuff so please check out our platform if you haven't already at griefdreams.ca And so there's information about the topic on there. And if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. And there you can share stories or or learn about other people's grief questions or or grief dreams. You can also check out our Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And so this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. And once again, if you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us your story and what we'd like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. 
So like we always like to say at the end of this podcast, with love and gratitude from us to you. beginning.